Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Kirk Church Podcast. I'm Aaron Elmore, lead pastor at Kirk of the Hills, located in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is where you can hear messages from all our pastors and guest speakers. Make sure to subscribe and share with anyone who follows the Kirk. If you want to know more about us, visit us at thekirk.com, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram at the Kirk Church. Let's get started with today's episode. Our topic this morning is grief. We're continuing in this series called Rest for the Weary. We're looking at various challenges that we face as humans, and we're processing them in light of this invitation from Jesus, who says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And so we talk about grief this morning. Grief simply is our response to the impact of a loss in our life. So obviously we think of grieving the loss of a loved one. That's just sort of the most uh, obvious expression of our grief. But let's remember that grief is a wide-ranging experience. Any loss that we encounter will result in our grief. And so it could be the loss of a dream, maybe the loss of a business that didn't do well, a change in our health, a change in our finances, divorce or change in relationship. The dream of a certain lifestyle and retirement. It could be the dream of getting into a certain school for college. There are many things that we grieve. We grieve because someone or something significant in our life has been taken from us. We grieve because unwelcome changes have disrupted our life. We grieve because our hopes and plans and dreams have not worked out. So I have a few introductory comments this morning before we get into our text. There's a lot of things that we could say about grief, but I just want to set this up in a way that I hope that will be helpful. First of all, I want to say that grief is normal. Grief is healthy. It's part of life. It's not what we're created for, right? All these challenges that we're talking about, we weren't created for them. And one day they will not be a part of our lives. But right now they are. And they're normal. Grieving is normal. It's a healthy part of life. There are things in this life that are worth grieving. We also need to understand that grief is unique to each person in each situation. In fact, two people in the same family can go through the same experience and yet their grief can look very different. Grief is unique. It's also complex. It can be very disorienting. And healing is a journey or a process. There isn't always a defined start line or end line. Grief doesn't always follow a predictable pattern. It isn't always linear. A number of years ago, there were the stages of grief that were kind of introduced. And we've come to realize that that may have been a little bit too simple. We've done more research. There's more understanding. We now understand that that the stages are not always sequential. In fact, even the end goal of letting go or moving past isn't always necessarily best or healthy. In fact, in some ways, our loss, it always shapes us. It's always a part of us. We learn new ways of relating and new ways of living But we don't necessarily get to the end of grief this side of heaven. Grief is also an opportunity for us to draw near to God. To receive the invitation of Jesus in our weariness, in the burden of our grief, to respond to Jesus and draw near to him. I'd also like to take just a moment to mention the different types of grieving styles. This is something that I learned in grief and loss counseling that has been particularly helpful to me. I didn't realize there were different categories of grieving styles. There's really two main ones. There's others, but I'm not going to get into all of those 
right now. The, the two main ones are the intuitive griever and the instrumental griever. So the intuitive griever is the typical grieving that we often think of. Very emotive, very social. They want to talk about it. There's lots of tears, lots of emotions, okay? The instrumental griever is more cognitive and behavioral. So this person actually grieves through doing things. They actually like helping to make the arrangements for the funeral. They will often do things to remember their loved one. They may set up a memorial. They may go and educate people about maybe an issue surrounding their loved one's death. They are instrumental. They, they think more. They're more internal. But they also like to do rather than necessarily to talk about it as much. Now, the truth is that it's a spectrum. And we all fall somewhere along there. We all do a little bit of both, but we may land left of center or right of center on that. And I found it to be very helpful, especially, I think, for the instrumental griever, because some people didn't realize that that was a thing, that that's a category. So sometimes we'll see someone that's grieving and we'll say, oh, they're not dealing with their grief. They're stuck. They're not processing it because they're not as emotive. Well, They may be more of an instrumental griever. Now, they may be stuck, but just because what you're observing suggests that they are doesn't mean that they are. So a lot of us really end up being blended grievers. That's just a little snapshot. Be glad to recommend some other resources for reading in that. But I do think it's helpful just to even have those categories of recognizing that there are different grieving styles and different ways to process it. I also want to mention just a few factors that affect the nature and intensity of our grief. If a loss is sudden or it's unexpected, that can make it more difficult. If there's any ambiguity about the loss or uncertainty, that can make it more complicated. If there's trauma or violence involved, it can make it more intense. Whether or not the loss was or perceived to be preventable. So, for example, if you lose your job, that's a loss and you have to grieve it. But if it could have been avoided, if you lost your job because of something that you did, it makes it even more complicated. Or in the case of a death, if it feels like it could have been preventable, it can be harder. There are different social stigmas, your family's history of dealing with loss, other concurrent stressors, like if your loss results in a financial hardship or a change in relationship, then not only are you grieving, but you also have those other challenges that are going on at the same time. These are just some of the factors that can affect the intensity, the duration, and our ability to heal from grief. Above all, we need to recognize that grief and loss is a major stressor in our lives. It's hard. It's difficult. And so we need each other and we need God's grace in order to go through these seasons of grief and to come out on the other side with faith and trust in God. And so in this series, we've been using case studies from the Gospels to sort of frame our conversations around biblical wisdom. Our primary text today is John's Gospel, chapter 11. We didn't read the whole story, so I'll set it up for you. The basic plot is that a friend of Jesus named Lazarus is very sick. His friends, uh, sorry, his family sends word to Jesus, hoping that he will come and heal Lazarus, as he has done for many people. And oddly, Jesus delays going to see Lazarus. Eventually, he makes the journey and upon arrival, learns that Lazarus has been dead for four days. The family's frustrated because they wish Jesus had come sooner, but the timing is no accident. In fact, as Jesus will say, it is for their good, somehow, that their brother has died. And it's because he's going to do a miracle and raise him from the dead. 
There's no doubt that he's dead. He's been in the tomb four days. A group are gathered. They're in full-on mourning by the time Jesus arrives. And when they ask Jesus why he didn't come sooner, he says that Lazarus will rise again. They assume that he's talking about the resurrection at the end of time. They don't realize what Jesus is about to do. Even knowing that, Jesus enters into mourning and grief with this family. And we're going to talk more about that. It's very profound. So there are many things that we could say about this story. Many different preaching angles. But I want us to process this story through the lens of what it has to say to us about grief. First, I think that we find redemption in our grief. In the setup to this story, which we didn't read this morning, but in verse 4, it says, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. This story unfolds in such a way that the God's sovereign redemptive purposes are at work and are highlighted. But what's strange and challenging is that at the beginning of the story, the sickness does result in death, right? We've already said it will not end in death, but it starts in death. And that leaves the sisters confused. It leaves them disappointed, even angry that Jesus didn't respond sooner for help. Before Jesus reaches their home, Martha comes out and she meets him and expresses her disappointment because she knew that Jesus could have healed Lazarus. Her words are a kind of combination of complaint, rebuke, and faith. Ever been there? Complaint, rebuke, and faith. She basically says, I don't know what you can do now, Jesus, but I know that God can do anything. So she still holds her faith. She's wondering, she's questioning, she's struggling, but she's clinging to faith. And we know that the resurrection of Lazarus is a foreshadow of the death and resurrection of Jesus, the ultimate purpose of God seen in both that God would be glorified and draw the hearts of people to trust in him. But we're in the middle of the story. It's hard to see this thread of the redemption of our suffering. There's a lot of examples of this in the Bible. One of them is Joseph. So about a year and a half ago, we did a series through the narrative about Joseph. And at the end of the book of Genesis, the punchline of the entire story is this. Genesis 50, 20. You intended to harm me, talking to his brothers, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. In other words, the things that happened in my life were bad. You, you intended them for bad, and they were genuinely bad. But yet in this, God was sovereignly working out his purposes. This is where this family is. They're in the middle of it. Their brother is dead. They can't see it. They don't see all the facts. They don't know how the story is going to end. And so they're struggling. In our suffering and grief, it's difficult to maintain an eternal perspective. After all, we're only human. We're finite. We don't always understand. Sometimes we'll understand later with perspective, and sometimes we may never. But we have to dig deep in faith. We have to believe God's promise that in all things, even genuinely bad and evil things, God is working all things together for his glory and our good. That's what Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. God is working all things together for his glory and our good. Now, some worldviews teach differently. Right? The Christian perspective on suffering and death and grief is unique. Some worldviews teach that suffering is random. It has no purpose. And therefore, there's nothing we can do about it. Our response is just 
It happens, right? Others teach that suffering is not real. It's just an illusion or perception. So we should transcend it. We should sort of pretend that it doesn't happen and rise above it. Some teach that suffering is fair in the sense that good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. So if you have suffering in your life, it's your own fault. Some teach that suffering is part of how we redeem ourselves. We have to go through it in order to make ourselves right. The Christian worldview is absolutely unique. It says, first of all, that suffering is real. It's not pretend. It's not an illusion. We go through real suffering. It's real. But that it's genuinely bad. It's not a good thing. It's not an illusion. It's not the way the world was created to be. But we will ultimately be redeemed by God who conquered our suffering through entering into suffering himself. Who defeated death by dying himself. This is a completely different perspective from all the other world religions and different world views on suffering. Suffering is real. It is bad. God sees it. He knows it. He cares about it. And he has done something in Christ and is doing something in building his kingdom that will bring it all to a place of resolution. God works all things together for his glory and our good. We see this promise worked out over and over again in the stories of the people in the Bible. Sometimes God turns the situation around in this life. Sometimes we get to see the bow just as we do in the story of Lazarus. We're going to read the ending at the end of of the sermon this morning. There's a bow on the end of this story. Lazarus is raised from the dead. Of course, he will die again, but he is raised from the dead. There's other stories where we don't get to see the bow this side of heaven. But make no mistake, in the end, God promises he is going to put a bow on all of it. He will bring our suffering and our grief to an end but sometimes we have to wait until heaven. And so we have hope in our grief. And I think that 1 Thessalonians 4 captures this perhaps better than any other two verses in the Bible. It says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. So did you catch that? We grieve. We just don't grieve like the rest of humanity. We grieve differently. I think some Christians need to have permission. They need to be reminded that we do grieve. That grieving, grieving is appropriate. But yet, we don't grieve without hope. And that's the tension we live in. I think that we can find life in our grief. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus is saying here in this statement, two powerful related ideas. In saying I am the resurrection and the life, he's actually saying two things. He's saying I am the resurrection and he's saying I am the life. The resurrection is the promise that we will eternally reign with God if we are in Christ. Saying that I am the life, I believe what Jesus is saying there is that I am the life now. You get this resurrection life now. It's not a, it's not a plan where the benefits are only in the future. They are for now. So we put it in chronological order. Jesus is saying, I am the resurrection life now. And he's saying, I am the promise of a future resurrection. Both. Life is found 
in Jesus. He is the life. He is the hope. Right? Our hope in the resurrection is not hope in a principle. It's hope in a person. Jesus himself was raised that he is called by scripture the first fruits. He is the promise that if he was raised, we also will be raised. We live in light of that hope. But here's the question that Jesus asks asks all of us. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Not did you believe this at one point in time, but do you believe it today? Faith, belief, trust, surrender. That's what Jesus asks of us, not perfection. He asks us to surrender our lives to the truth of who he is and what he has done for us. Not just to believe the facts, but to, but to live in light of the truth that he is the resurrection and the life. The next few verses show us Jesus' response to the sorrow of the sisters, even though Jesus knows what he is about to do. Right? He could have just skipped this step. He could have just said, hey, you know what? Let's just, let's take care of this. Come on out, Lazarus. Problem solved. But before he does that, knowing what he's going to do, he enters into the suffering of this family. He is deeply troubled. He grieves with them. He suffers with them. And in this, I believe that we find Jesus in our grief. We find a God who suffers with us, who is deeply moved who is compassionate, who is gracious. And this, this verse here, 35, Jesus wept. You know, when we were in VBS growing up, it was always the boys against the girls. I don't know why that was the thing. And then it gave you points for various stuff you did. It was probably pretty terrible. It was like you bring an offering, you get points. And you memorize Bible verses and you get points. And uh, of course, this verse was always a favorite because you get a point for Jesus wept, even though it's only two verses. It's sort of, sort of known jokingly as the shortest verse in the Bible. But this is a profound verse. Let's not lose that. It's the exclamation point of what the Bible has been telling us all along, which is that we serve a God who sees every tear, who knows every tear, who enters into our suffering, who weeps with us. And if you didn't believe it, here he is in flesh and blood, Jesus showing us the heart of the Father as he shows us his full humanity. And he wept. He wept. He wept. And We too, even though we know how the story ends, we still weep. We cry over these things in our lives. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. From the beginning of the Bible to the very end, we see that God is a God who cares, who knows and who was close to us. Sometimes when tragedy strikes, people will say, where is God in this? Where is God in these hard things? And the answer of scripture is, in those times, he is near to us. He draws close to us. That's where God is. Where is God in the midst of tragedy? He is right in the middle of it, suffering alongside those who suffer. So this past week, um, Pastor Tim Keller passed away. I don't know if you've heard that yet. Just a few days ago. And uh, so it, you know, it's just interesting. I don't know the right word, but to be uh, talking about this in a sermon about grief. And he wrote a, literally wrote the book, wrote the book on walking with God through pain and suffering. And so I was, 
I was peeling around in that book this week a little bit and came across this great section where Keller's discussing some of the, uh, that some people, for them, pain and suffering reinforces their view that God does not exist. So pain and evil, it, it causes them to be more hardened. And we tend to focus on that. But he says, he writes, at the time, I learned that just as many people find God through affliction and suffering. Over the years, I came to realize that adversity did not merely lead people to believe in God's existence. It pulled those who already believed into a deeper experience of God's reality and love and grace. One of the main ways we move from abstract knowledge about God to a personal encounter with him as a living reality is through the furnace of affliction. And then he quotes C.S. Lewis. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. And then he finishes the paragraph by quoting an unnamed man who said, you don't really know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. You don't really know that he's all you need until he's all you have. Our suffering is an opportunity. It's an experience for us to experience the closeness of Jesus, to find God in the very hard thing. Our understanding of this nearness of God is fully realized when God took on flesh and entered our world. In the person of Jesus Christ, we come to know these attributes of God, especially his tender mercy for our suffering and our affliction. We understand that God is a God who weeps with us. And we understand this clearly when the Lord Jesus is deeply troubled and moved at the death of Lazarus and the corresponding suffering of Mary and Martha. All along, Scripture paints this picture of a God who cares and who loves and is moved. And Jesus shows us the heart of the Father. So years ago, uh, before I had children, my wife and I had been spending some time with uh, some people that had a number of of young kids. And I remember uh, leaving that time together and asking my wife, do all little kids cry that much? I've come to realize the answer is yes. Yes, yes, they do. Children cry a lot. It's a way they don't always know how to express their feelings, their emotions. In fact, crying is, is an important part. Whether literal tears are being deeply moved within, sometimes I think that maybe there are no tears being shed, but in a way, we are being moved by tears. And I think that Crying can be an important part of processing our grief. And I came across this verse this week in study. Psalm 56, verse 8. It says, You keep track of all my sorrows. You've collected all my tears in your bottle. You've recorded each one in your book. Isn't that amazing? Think about the fact that there is not one single tear. There is not one ounce of our pain and our suffering that God does not see. He does not care about. He does not know the intricacies of our situation. He knows it all. And he weeps with us. He suffers with us over the condition of the world. Romans 12 verse 15, we're instructed to weep with those who weep. And so sometimes the most Christ-like thing that we can do is sit with those who are suffering. Maybe not saying much, if anything at all. We mourn with them. We match their energy. We absorb their, their hardship with them. We love them. 
In fact, we ought to be careful what we do say in those times, because sometimes there's things that are true, but they may not be very helpful at the moment or at that time in that season of their grief. Less is more. We have a presence. We sit with those who are suffering and we suffer with them. But here's how the story ends. Verse 40, Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. It's amazing. Of course, these events, they have no idea are foreshadowing the resurrection that is about to happen. It's a powerful reminder to us in our grief and our suffering that God is with us. It's also a powerful reminder that we're all like Lazarus. We're all spiritually dead. And Jesus calls us out of the grave into a new life now and into the future. And not only does this story end with this promise of the end of grief, but I think the story of the Bible also reminds us of a time when our grief will come to an end. Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. We grieve, but we grieve with hope. We grieve differently from the rest of mankind If you're in an acute season of deep grief, I encourage you to find places where you can share and you can talk. Consider being a part of a group, uh, grief share or another support group. To talk to your small group, to talk to family and friends, to find those instrumental ways to grieve in a healthy way. If you feel stuck, to reach out to a pastor or a counselor or a therapist. And if you're not in a season of deep grief right now, and, and I guess I nuance that because we're all grieving something. We all have some kind of loss we're dealing with in our life. But if you're not in a deep season of that, I want to tell you this. You really can't prepare for suffering that you're, you haven't entered into yet, but you can build the foundation of your life. You can dig your roots deeper so that you're prepared. Even though you'll be blown by the storms of life, you will not be uprooted. You can build that foundation of faith and trust in God through regularly practicing worship and being in Scripture and building your community of faith around you. It may not prepare you exactly for your suffering, but it will root you in your faith and trust in God. That's the best way to prepare, so to speak, for those things. So let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the promise of your word. God, that somehow we can believe that you're going to take all things, even the bad and hard things in our lives, and in the end, you're going to redeem them. You're going to make them work out to bring you great glory. God, it will be for our ultimate good. God, help us to believe. Help us to believe that you are the resurrection and the life. God, help us in our unbelief. 
God, I pray for those who are in a deep season of grief right now that you will reveal yourself to them as the God of all comfort. That they will know your presence. They will know that you are with them and that you are a God who weeps with us, who comes alongside and suffers with us. And they'll be comforted by the truth that you entered into suffering to crush our suffering, to crush our spiritual death. God, and to make it possible for us to have new life in you. So God, I just pray that you would fill my brothers and sisters with hope, with faith, with trust, and with the fullness of your Holy Spirit. God, help us to grieve, but to grieve with hope. Lord, help us to know that you are real and that you love us with an everlasting love. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.